Well, good morning. You all doing well? It's good to see you. Y'all, it's August. Like, seriously, like summer is gone. It's unbelievable. Now, you know what that means, though, don't you? Right? That means that the college football season is right around the corner. Can I get an amen? Right, thank you. Thank you, Tommy. I knew you had me. Man, it is rapidly approaching, and if you haven't figured this out yet, I'm I'm a little bit of a sports fan, okay? And so every time college football season rolls around, I'm reminded of the maturation process of my sports fandom. Maybe that's not the right phrase to use, because I don't know that I would say I'm a mature sports fan, but I've definitely evolved through the years. And, and I think about the different eras and seasons of my life when it comes to sports fandom, and you all can probably relate to them on a personal level, or maybe you have somebody in your life that you see uh, them express their own fandom in these ways. Like, I remember one season of my life, I was the emotionally unstable sports fan, right? You know this person? This is the person whose emotions will rise and fall with the success of their team, okay? Their team wins, you know, it's good days, right? Bright skies, sunshine, and nothing can get them down. But when their team loses, it ruins not just their day, but quite possibly their weekend, right? And hypothetically speaking, let's say your team has a chance to play for a national championship and they lose a tough game, it may ruin the next six months of their life, purely hypothetically speaking, right? But it's the emotionally unstable fan. I've been there, okay? Uh, Now, a lot of times what happens is that after you move out of the emotionally unstable season of life, you move to pessimism, okay? And this is the reaction where you say, I'm just going to go ahead and anticipate the worst before it actually happens, and that protects me from any sort of emotional letdown that I've experienced before. These are the fans that can watch their team be up by 30 and be like, we're going to blow it, right? We got no defense. Look at that. They can't tackle anybody. We're not going to do anything this year, right? Nothing is good for the pessimistic sports fan. I've been there before as well. Now, what changed for me as I've, I think, mentioned this to you before, is that I had children. And, and I recognized that I would be modeling this behavior for my kids, and I didn't want them to see somebody emotionally unstable, and I didn't want them to see somebody always pessimistic. So my more recent era of fandom is optimism, okay? So much so that I think, I've told you this before, several of my friends refer to me during this time of year as optimistic Jerry, okay? Because I'm the sort of guy that my team can do no wrong, right? We can be down by 30, and I'm like, we still got a chance, right? You can lose a heartbreaking loss to Georgia, and you're like, we're going to win it next year. Don't worry about, you know, and I just kind of try to foster and preserve that optimism, okay? So I've, I've evolved in my sports fandom throughout the years. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at lunch with a young couple in our church, and, and the guy that was there with me that day actually looked at me and said, now, what school did you go to in college? And I realized when he asked that question that we're long overdue for a sermon illustration related to the University of Oklahoma. So let me just go ahead and share a little bit with it. And I know we're University Baptists. I know we're next to TCU. I've got the purple shirt, purple tie. I can be supportive. But come on, y'all. Sooner born, sooner bred. Okay? And so here was the thing. My, my grandfather went to OU, so I had a strong loyalty to it before I even got to college age. Uh, my mom was born in Oklahoma City. We had ties to the state. And so I grew up doing this before I could even walk. In fact, that's the only way my hand works when it makes this gesture. I can't do it the other way. I had no desire to even consider Texas A&M. There are only two Texas schools that I considered, okay? Uh, I looked at Baylor, and I thought about Texas Tech. And I thought about Baylor because I knew I wanted to go into ministry. Uh, Most of my family had gone to Texas Tech, so I considered those. And that's really where I thought I was going to end up. But the Lord was gracious And his face shined upon me, and he spared me from the cities of Waco and Lubbock and led me to the promised land of Norman, Oklahoma, okay? And so it just so happened that when I was a freshman, it it coincided with Bob Stoops' second year as the head coach there, and and we won the national Yes, we. We won the national championship. And and let me just tell you something. When you show up to school your freshman year, and your, 
Your school wins the national championship. It ruins you as a fan, okay? Of course I was emotionally unstable after that. And a lot of that emotional instability was experienced within that season itself, okay? I, I thought about walking you through all the highlights of the season this morning, but we don't have time. As glorious as it was for me to relive, uh, I really need to just focus on one particular memory that I have from that season. So it's towards the end of the season. It's the last game of the season. OU's the only undefeated team left in the country. So I know that if we win, we're going to have a chance to play for the title. So our last game is against Oklahoma State in Stillwater, Oklahoma over Thanksgiving weekend, okay? Oklahoma State is kind of frustrating because they call it a rivalry because we're in the same state. But if you look at the series record, OU's won like a bajillion and 80 to four, okay? It's not really a rivalry. But what makes that problematic is that when you win, it's no big deal. When you lose, it's like losing to your younger brother, okay? And you just hear about it nonstop. And for whatever reason, when you play in Stillwater, it's tricky. Like it's a tough game. And so here we are over Thanksgiving weekend. I'm a freshman college. I care nothing about seeing my family. All I want to see is an OU victory, okay? So we're sitting there and we're watching this game, and what I was hoping for was a blowout so I could just sit back and relax and enjoy the holiday. But it was the opposite, okay? It was a nail-biter. It was 12 to 7. OU had the lead. It was in the final seconds of the game, and Oklahoma State was driving and was threatening to score. And if they scored, our hopes of a title were going to be completely dashed, right? So I'm watching this unfold, and I'm literally angry, okay? I'm just angry at everything that is happening in front of me. I'm, I'm just can feel it raging within me. And, and I start recognizing this is not the best environment for me to be experiencing these sorts of emotions. Because, you know, like when you're angry, the last thing you want is to have somebody come up and ask you if you're angry, right? And my mom, with all sweetness and sincerity and genuine concern, would look at me throughout the game. She'd be like, they're just, they're just playing so terribly. Kiermaier, if they lose, are you going to be mad? All right, and it's like my mom, so I'm like biting my tongue, okay? But it finally, it gets to the point where I just had to react, and I was like, Mom, stop talking, right? And, and I said it in a way that in any other season of, of life, I would have been all sorts of grounded, okay? But, but I was so charged up, and so it kind of set this awkwardness in the room where the rest of the family was really worried about ticking time bomb Jerry. Like, if, if they lose, he's going to explode, Okay? So, so as fate would have it, OU actually wins the game, but I was so charged up, I had to leave my house and walk around the neighborhood to calm down, okay? And so as I'm walking around the neighborhood, I kind of have this epiphany, and I realize just how upset I was going to be if OU had lost that game, and I recognize that it's, it's probably not healthy for a bunch of 18 to 20-year-old boys that throw around a leather ball to have that sort of impact on my life, right? Especially at Thanksgiving, and so I was like, I need to step away from this a little bit. It's not good to get this angry about something, right? And so that really was the catalyst that kind of moved me into this evolution of fandom that led to pessimism and then ultimately optimism. But I share it with you this morning because I think while it's a trivial example, many of us have been in those situations in life where we have felt so angry at something that we then have this moment of clarity and realize this isn't good, right? This is not good for me to feel this way or to to carry this sort of anger and resentment, right? And, and we've experienced it in a lot of different ways. And, and I want us to press into that emotion a little bit more intentionally this morning, but I want to do so not, not through the lens of trivial experiences like sports or, or getting frustrated when somebody cuts you off on the road or anger at your career, or even, even angry, anger at a loved one. Uh, where I really want us to press into today is a very more intentional and very important question is what do we do when we're angry with God? Those moments 
where that rage begins to build up within us and we're just so frustrated at who God is. That's the question I want us to wrestle with a little bit this morning. And I want us to address it in two distinct ways. First of all, I want us to see the warning signs of letting that anger get the best of us. Because when we walk around with that anger, it's ultimately going to lead us to a place of despair, right? A, a dark corner of our soul. And so we need to first acknowledge the, the pitfalls and the threats of that sort of anger. But then I want us to conclude by saying, okay, well then what do we do with that anger? How do we, how do we handle it? And my belief is that once we've answered those questions, we'll arrive at a place where we can see that no matter what circumstances befall us, we always have reason to praise the name of the Lord our God because we can know for sure he has been good to us. So that's our goal. That's our plan. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's see. Let's, let's try Jonah today. How about that? Why don't you turn to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we've just got a couple more weeks. We've got today and next week. And then we're starting a new series uh, for Promotion Sunday, August 19th. We're going to be going back to our key convictions. And we're going to look at them through a slightly different lens uh, related to our identity. How our own personal convictions shape our identity. And so what does it mean for me as an individual to be gospel-centered and biblically guided. And so we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount uh, to, to navigate us through that journey. I'm really excited about that series, but first we get to finish Jonah. Praise God. Amen. Right? We're almost there. Uh, now chapter four is a little bit distinct, but I, I want to offer a quick word of clarification on last week's message because uh, I just want to make sure um, that, that I, I communicate this clearly because I, I used a phrase last week that I'm afraid may have uh, offered the wrong message that what I was trying to intend but we talked about can we change God's mind, and, and that led us to a discussion of the debate between predestination and free will. And I said in that message that I didn't want us to swim in the deep end of the pool, and, and then offered some reasons why. And, and I, I'm afraid, and, and I had a chance to dialogue with you folks, that I insinuated, and I was not intending to, that it's, that it's not good to think deeply about certain things. Um, that wasn't my intent. My intent was just to say we were only going to be able to get so deep in that message last week uh, and that there are specific concerns that we have on that particular issue that we need to be uh, cautious against. And so I want to make sure you guys understand, I absolutely think it's important for us to think deeply about things. All right? The, the scriptures tell us, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I want to affirm that. I want to encourage that and clarify that from last week. But, but what we did get to see last week was this change, right? God has relented and spared Nineveh. And it was this drastic turn of events, and so now in chapter 4, Jonah re-enters into the equation, and we get to see Jonah's response and his interaction with the Lord with this turn of events. Now, chapter 4 is a little odd in its structure. It's, it's actually written out of chronological order. So we're going to look at the first four verses today, but then 5 through 11, which we'll look at last week, is actually what happens while Jonah's waiting to see if Nineveh is going to be spared. So it kind of has a different flow to it, uh, but we're going to walk through it the way it was written. So... If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 4, and let us read these first four verses together. It says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Okay, this is a really fascinating interaction between Jonah and the Lord. And what we see in the first verse is this description that it seemed very wrong to Jonah. Now that word wrong is a term that we have seen emerge time and time again through the story of Jonah. 
It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, which is the word for evil or wickedness. It's the same word that is used to describe Nineveh in chapter 1 when the author talks about the wickedness of Nineveh. So essentially what we see here is that Jonah feels as if God is doing something that is evil. Right? He's attributing this act to being wicked, to being wrong. It seems wrong to Jonah. And so what we have in this first verse is this conflict between Jonah and the Lord about what is right, what is just, what is wrong or wicked. And I highlight that for us today because I think that's something all of us are going to encounter in some form or fashion through the course of our lives. Right? This conflict where we have to determine what is truly right, what is truly wrong and fair. How do I determine what is evil or wicked? And am I going to make those decisions based on human wisdom or biblical wisdom? And we have to be thinking intentionally about that because you and I live in a society today we live in a culture today that's going to highlight specific issues or topics or, or points, and they're going to elevate them, and they're going to give this voice and this rationale in terms of what is right and what should be acceptable and what should be embraced to the point that they're even going to highlight things that are said in the Scripture and label them as wrong and wicked and evil. And so we need to know how to react to that. Right? For example, issues related to sexuality, marriage, gender. Are we going to respond to those things based on human wisdom or biblical wisdom? Think about materialism, right? Culture is going to tell us what we should do with our resources and how we should spend them and how we should save. And are we going to follow suit according to human wisdom or biblical wisdom, right? There's always this conflict. And what we see here in verse 1 is that it seemed wrong to Jonah, right? He's basing his reaction on a human expression. Now, what's also significant about verse 1 is the emphasis in which it is written. This is written is about as strong as possible in the Hebrew language, Right? In fact, the, the more literal translation is that with great evil to Jonah, with great evil. It is, it is emphatic. It says it twice. He is in complete disagreement with what he is seeing unfold. And so the result is anger. He has become angry. Now, the word anger here speaks to a strong displeasure. It's a word that often uh, insinuates the idea of a burning sensation, to be enraged. So Jonah is completely enraged. He is strongly displeased with what he has seen. And what I want you to acknowledge or, or highlight here in these first few verses is that it's not just that Jonah is frustrated at the event, he's frustrated with God himself. Right? Because as you continue to read, that's what Jonah says. I knew this is what you would do. This is who you are. Gracious, compassionate, Slow to anger, abounding in love, one who relents in sending calamity. What Jonah just did there was refer back to this formula that you find in the Old Testament that reveals the name and the character of God. It's built upon Moses' interaction with God back in Exodus where the Lord passes in front of Moses, covering him with his hand and declaring his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is God's character and Jonah is enraged at it. So what we really have here is not just a moment of contention with God where we feel like we want to redefine and rationalize what we can do with our money or with our lives. These are the moments when we look out and we see suffering, we see pain, we experience it personally, and we say, man, if that's God, I want no part of him. I don't want to support a God that allows that to happen. That's the sort of anger that Jonah is carrying. He's angry at God. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we do with that? Because if you haven't been there before, you probably will be at some point in your life, and many of you might be there today. 
And so how do we handle that anger? And the way I want us to, to wrestle with it, like I said earlier, is to first acknowledge a, a word of caution, right? That, that anger against God ultimately leads us to a dark corner of our soul where we find the weight of despair. And that's what we see in Jonah. As you look at verse 3, where this anger has led him as he finally says, Lord, take my life. It is better to die than to live. Now, it'd be real easy for us just to gloss over that and get to the question that God presents in verse 4. But I read through that and I was like, we, we can't just run past that. We just had a prophet say, I'd rather die than live. And he's not the first. Elijah said it. Jeremiah implied it. There are times in the scriptures where we see these chosen ones, these holy ones of God that reach a point of complete and total despair that they would rather choose death over life. And so we need to wrestle with that for a moment. And the reason I want us to wrestle with it is not just because it's in the text, but because it's a cultural reality that's facing us today. We need to talk about those moments where we begin to contemplate that death is a better choice than life. We need to talk about the reality of suicide in our culture. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to address it because, number one, we need to break the stigma, right? It, it doesn't need to just be something that we talk about in hushed tones and in private prayer requests, right? We need to be open about it and change the rhetoric a little bit and be able to discuss how do we talk about this in a healthy way, right? Because it is prolific enough, as you're going to see here in a moment, that, that all of us, whether we're parents, whether we're friends, whether we're grandparents, we need to know how to respond and sense it in the lives of others and in ourselves, so I want, I want to walk us through some of the things related to this topic, and I want to just tell you, much of what I will share is, is compiled from the research that I've spent over the last few weeks and months on this issue, right? So some of it's from articles like US, USA Today, Christianity Today, Medium.org. Um, we, we had a lot of different uh, folks that I, I read, and, and a lot of it kind of culminates, and a lot of it says the same thing. And so what I'm sharing with you is, is a summary of that research, okay? But here's... Here's where I want to start. Let's first identify how big of an issue it's become, okay? Uh, a few months ago, we had some notable celebrities that, that chose to take their own life, and as a result, the CDC came out and announced that in, from 1999 to 2016, we've seen a 25% increase in suicide. In, tw in 2016, there were more suicides than homicides in our country. So every day, 123 people will take their life in this country. So in the time that, that you're going to spend today, waking up, getting dressed, sitting down and having breakfast, uh, driving to church, the time that we're going to spend singing songs, the time that we're going to spend going to lunch afterwards, and whatever you have planned, but whatever you do today, 123 people will take their own life. Worldwide, it happens every 40 seconds. It's happening all around us, in our country, and around the world. And what's really added to the alarm recently is the prevalence amongst teenagers. Uh, there was a study done by Vanderbilt University that identified that between 2008 to 2015, the number of adolescents that were hospitalized as a result of attempts or tendencies doubled. It doubled from, from 2008 to 2015. It is now uh, more prevalent, more likely for a teenager to die uh, by the act of suicide than in an automobile accident. For ages 10 to 24, it's the second leading cause of death. All right, so it, it's around us, and we need to learn how to address it. Now, there are a lot of factors that are contributing to it, a lot, a lot of things that are catalytic for it. When you look at teenagers in particular, studies keep pointing back to social media, screen time, like disconnect. It is not good for you. 
You don't have to abstain from it altogether, but good gracious, limit it. Uh, school angst and the pressures at school, is pressures with relationships. We see uh, pressures related to sleep deprivation, just overall failure to take health or, or concern of your overall health. And when you zoom out beyond just teenagers, we see that many people are suffering from mental illness, from depression, from loneliness, from isolation. All of these things are contributing factors to it. One article I came across was written by Dr. Golston, who's the author of this, this book called Just Listen, and he specializes in this field. And he said, while you can see all those factors, and yes, they contribute to it, the main root that leads someone to this point is ultimately called despair. And he, he defines it in a more intentional way. He breaks it apart, says, despair, to be unpaired from something, disconnected altogether. You get unpaired from hope. Whatever it is that you're feeling, you feel like there's no way out of it, there's no way to fix it. You get unpaired from, from meaning. You feel like your life has no more value, has no worth, nothing that you can sign to. You get unpaired from purpose, no reason to continue. That's despair, and that's what many people are carrying with themselves, which reminds us of what it is for us to be a loving community. Because as a key conviction for our church, the reason we have to take this issue seriously is that if we actually exist as a loving community, it will be very difficult for people to feel unpaired from each other or from God. That they'll always, in some level, feel connected. And we have to foster that within our midst. There is a quote that I came across. This guy's name was Jamie Torkowski. He's the founder of an organization called To Write Love on Our Arms, which is another great resource for us. And he, he gave an example of, of how the church needs to view this. And, and I thought this was so well said. I want to share it with you today. This is a, a picture of what I'm envisioning in terms of a loving community. He says, Christians are known for really liking their answers. We're known for telling people how to live, how to think, how to vote. But what if? What if Christians were known for meeting people in their questions? What if we were known for being willing to meet people in their pain? What if we were willing to show up and sit in silence? What if we were willing to cry with someone? That, to me, is a picture of a loving community. One that is willing to show up and meet people in their pain. And that's what we need to pursue. Now, I don't want to just talk about a few statistics and read a few quotes to try to emphasize the importance of this subject. I actually want to take some time today to talk practically about what we can do to work towards this. Right, so there, there are seven quick steps that I would, that I would offer, right? seven things that we can do practically, and these, again, are a culmination of, of other research. These aren't mine. I'm just sharing with you part of what I read. Right, but here's what we need to do. Number one, tell somebody you love them every day. If you're a parent and you have a youth or a teenager, tell them you love them every day. Don't let a day go by without saying it. Let them know that that love is unconditional. Let them know that you're proud of them. If you're a teenager, if you're a friend, and you know somebody in your life that is disconnected, that doesn't have that support, tell them you love them. Let them hear that they're valued. Listen, as, as God's people, we are called to share the love of Christ, which means every day somebody should hear that they are loved, and they should hear it from the church. Number one, tell somebody you love them. Number two, be present. Right? We can't just love in, in speech. We have to love in deed. Be present. Spend time with someone. 30 minutes a day with your children, just talking, going on errands. 30 minutes a day with a friend who you can tell is isolated or disconnected. Be present. Be with them. Sit. Listen. Number three, be willing to talk openly and honestly. Right? If you sense that somebody's going through something difficult, ask them. 
Don't be afraid to say, hey, are you depressed? Are you hurting? Are you lonely? Be willing to talk about it. If you sense it in yourself, tell someone. Be willing to speak up and say, man, I'm depressed. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. We need to be willing to talk openly and honestly about it, which leads us to number four. One of the ways we do that is understand that it's a condition, right? If you are suffering from depression, loneliness, isolation, mental health, that does not make you less of a Christian. That does not make you less of a person. It's a condition in the same way that you can get sick, in the same way that you can get injured. This is a condition, and we need to see it as such, which leads us to number five. We need to know the signs, right? How do we begin to identify this and others are in ourselves? Here are some of the signs that these authors have suggested. Number one, noticeable changes in moods and attitudes. Isolation, complaints about physical pain, feeling like a burden to others, sleeping too little or too much, increased substance use, preoccupations with death and dying. Most people that end up choosing to take their own life have admitted thinking about it to someone before they actually try it. So when you hear somebody talk, like, take it seriously and take action, which leads us to the sixth step, know the resources, right? Know what to do about it. Here's a number I want you to write down. Write it down on your worship guide, plug it into your phone. 1-800-273-TALK. All right, that is a 24-hour, I hope I got that right. That is a 24-hour suicide prevention hotline. Write it down, because you're either going to need the number or you're going to know somebody that might need the number. But there are other resources. I mentioned one earlier. To write love on her arms is another place you can go. I'll tell you one thing that we're going to do as a staff. I haven't told them this yet, but I'll tell them now. They have these mental health first aid clinics. We're going to do it. And we're going to equip ourselves. You're going to have leaders in your church that are equipped to help people in these scenarios. And I want you to know that. And then I would ask you that if it stirs you, follow our lead. Right? Pursue it yourself. Be, be trained. Here's another thing. Seek professional help. Okay, yes, we want to create a loving community, but we also need to acknowledge that professionals are better equipped to deal with some of these things, and, and we need to embrace that, right? Listen, if you, if, if you uh, have your car break down, what are you going to do? You're going to take it to a mechanic, right? If, if you break your arm, what are you going to do? You're going to go to a hospital. You're not going to just pray over it, right? And so there are professionals that are there to help. Now, we as a church can't outsource it to professionals and just assume they've got it. And we as a church can't assume that a professional is just going to magically make it all disappear. We need both. A loving community that can walk with us and professionals that can help us in a clinical way as well. Which leads us to number seven. All of us need to remember what God desires. Ezekiel 18.32. The Lord never delights in anyone who dies. He doesn't desire death for anyone. God always wants us to experience life. He never desires this for us. Everything about his message to us is to set us free from the agony of death through Jesus, our Lord. So we need to understand what God intends. So when we take those steps, right, when, when we tell people we love them, when we're present, when we're able to talk openly and honestly, when we understand that it's a condition, when we know the signs, when we know the resources, and we understand what God wants, then maybe we can begin to foster a loving community that can guard against the pitfalls of despair. That's what we need to do. Now, how do we as persons, as individuals, what do we do with this anger that we feel towards God at times? How do we handle it? Well, I would argue that Jonah actually gives us a pretty decent example. You may disagree with his rationale for being angry. You may disagree with what he's saying. But look what Jonah does with this anger. Jonah prayed. I love that. And that is a stark contrast to what Jonah would have done in chapter 1. Because chapter 1, Jonah runs. But in chapter 4, he prays. 
And he comes to the Lord. He says, all right, I'm not running from you anymore because I know that doesn't work. That doesn't get me anywhere. I'm not going to hide this from you. I'm going to confess what I'm feeling to you. And he brings it to the Lord, and we discover that God can handle our anger. It's amazing. Now, God responds to him, doesn't he, with, with verse 4. He says, now, is it right for you to be angry? Now, when I first read that verse, I read it like a good American, right? And I thought about, like, our rights as citizens or as people, right? Inalienable rights. And I thought, well, do we have the right to be angry at God? That, to me, is not really what the question is stating. Because the word here, right, is actually better defined as good. I like there's a right way to live. There's a good way to live. And what God is saying is, is it good for you to be angry? And what I believe we can see in this interaction is that there are going to be moments in life where, yes, we are angry, and that's okay. And we can bring that anger to the Lord, and we confess it to God, and we can do so in a manner and see that he can handle it, but he's going to remind us it's not good for you. You have to figure out a way to surrender it. And so I want to conclude, I want to close by by drawing from Jonah's example and looking at one of the most powerful prayers that we have in the scriptures that relate to anger. If you, if you want, you can turn to Psalm 13. This is one of my favorite prayers in all of the Bible. We don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it to you this morning. This, to me, serves as a guide that when we carry this anger and this resentment to God, we can pray in such a way that is similar to Jonah and similar to the psalmist here in Psalm 13. Listen to what the psalmist says. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now the word anger is not explicitly used in this text, but if there is ever a prayer that shows us that we can confess our anger to the Lord, it's Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long are you going to hide from me? How long am I going to have to wrestle with these thoughts and carry this sorrow in my heart day after day and feel as if my enemies are triumph over me? How long? Answer me, Lord. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. It is a prayer filled with despair. And we've been there. I've been there. I've been there in that season of life where I've gotten in my car and slammed the door and just screamed at God out of anger because of what I felt like he was doing was not fair and the only prayer I could pray was how long? How long do I have to watch this unfold? God can handle our anger. But what makes Psalm 13 so powerful is not the beginning but the end because the psalmist shows us that despite what circumstances may be occurring there's always reason to trust for he continues in verse 5 what does he say but i will trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation and i will sing the lord's praise for he has been good to me that's how we handle our anger in a healthy way we can confess it we can be honest but we move forward with an unwavering trust always knowing in the goodness of our lord And that's how I want to close, right? I want to give you just three simple things to never forget that no matter what happens in your life, you can know that you can praise the name of the Lord our God for he's been good to you because he's given you life, right? You 
You have been given life. Now, it may not have turned out the way that you've wanted. It may be filled with difficulty and hardship, but breathe deep. It's a gift. The fact that you exist is a gift, and it should never be taken for granted. He's given you life. He's also given you his image. We have been made in the image of our creator. So those moments when you look in the mirror and you see something that makes you feel unvalued, you see a deformity, you see a disability, you need to understand that you are still made in the image of God and you are beautiful. You see insecurities, you see imperfections, you need to understand that you are still made in the image of God and you are beautiful. Every single one of you, listen to me, all of you are fearfully and wonderfully made because he's put his mark on you. You're his. And if you ever question that, then never doubt the fact that not only has he given you life, not only has he given you his image, he's given you his son. He has sent Jesus to confirm the fulfillment of this promise, Emmanuel, God with us. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we see that he truly does want to set us free from the agony of death and let us experience everlasting life. And that with Jesus, we are awakened to the all-surpassing love that is in Christ Jesus. He's given us life. He's given us his image. He's given us his son. So what shall we say in response to all of it? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Everything you face, everything you encounter, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, in all these things, we are all more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For we can be convinced as one body, as one church, that nothing, neither death nor life nor angels or demons, nor the present, the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. He's given you life. He's given you his image. He's given you his son. And because of that, no matter what happens, we can always praise the name of the Lord our God because we know he has been good to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge today that there are seasons in life where our anger and our sense of what is right is wrong can lead us to places of despair where we can feel disconnected from you from your church. So I pray that if there's anyone here today that carries that sentiment, that carries that emotion, that you would draw us closer to you and you would remind us, remind us of what you've done. Father, that all of us could trust in your unfailing love. Father, that our hearts could rejoice in your salvation. That we can sing praises to you because we know that in all things you've been good to us. And so Father, may we commit to that today. And may we commit to it tomorrow and forevermore. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.